Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the first league win of the season of the podcast. Can't believe you ever doubted it. And I'm joined by the out of the relegation zone of the podcast, Joe Hill. We were never really worried, were we? And finally, the let's not pretend it was pretty of the podcast. No danger of that. It's Tom Woodhead. Tom, how are you doing? I'm not bad. It's nice to not have that sort of familiar Monday feeling of uh, Leeds having lost over the weekend and everything just feeling like shit so yeah it's good. Another man who feels always top of the world Joe Hill. Joe how are you doing? Yeah I'm pretty good thanks. Um, It's nice to have got my voice back as well. Sorry to anyone that listened to the last podcast (laughs) um, and had to endure my horrible voice so I'm back to normal and I'm feeling good and yeah it's nice to have the first win under the belt. Yeah, it is. And there's plenty for us to get our teeth into. So let's jump into the, the review of that game, which was, as everyone will be well aware, a 1-0 win at home to Watford. Leeds came out in a 4-1-4-1 again to counter Watford's 4-2-3-1. So nothing out of the ordinary there. The only change we saw was Diego Llorente in for Charlie Cresswell. Um, everything else was the same as the West Ham lineup. I think the theme that we're going to have coming up quite a bit in this podcast is that it's hard to break the game down too much into sort of periods. I think Leeds started brightly for the first 15 minutes or so. Uh, and just as they seemed to be dropping off a little, they, they scored from a corner very soon after with Diego Urente acrobatically poking home from a six-yard box scramble. After this, I think Leeds looked pretty dangerous again for the next 15 minutes or so uh, before before gradually dropping off again. And then we, I think over the course of the, the game, we saw that slow sort of wind down that we see from Leeds in, in, in games this season, uh, which which feels a little bit unusual, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just that the games felt better in, in, in the last few seasons. Um, although Leeds were com- comfortable throughout the game, they didn't really generate uh, any really good chances throughout the match. Statsbomb had them at 1.9 XG, the, the chances, but actually I noticed that there was only 0.5 post-shot XG, which I think basically tells the story of the game. And I think there's a lot of fans quite frustrated that Leeds were controlling the game relatively, but not generating more dangerous chances. Um, and that's something that we can talk about a little bit in this in this summary. Um, the second half started off well enough, but 
as I said, leads began to wind down as the game went on. Um, and then the only really notable things that happened in the second half from a tactical point of view is that Tyler Roberts replaced Stuart Dallas around the 70th minute. And then we saw a, a cameo from Pascal Strauch back from his suspension. Um, he came on late for Matthias Click and dropped into the, the DM slot for a minute when Calvin Phillips pushed a little bit further forward. So yeah, that's that. That's my summary of the game. Not a huge amount really going on in terms of the overarching stuff, but plenty of things to get our teeth into in, individually, I think. So let's move on to the interrogation section. So this is the interrogation section where I ask the guys five questions about the game, um, give, them, give us a chance to have a good old chat about it. So let's kick off with this. Tom Woodhead, was this a case of Leeds looking good or Watford looking bad? You've already alluded to what your potential answer might be here, but uh, what do you make of that question? Well, I, I think Watford absolutely were really bad. Like, um, possibly one of the worst, maybe the worst performance since we've been promoted from an opposition team. Um, certainly in an attacking sense, they offered absolutely nothing. They had like multiple opportunities to break, like we occasionally see happen, and it, it can be quite catastrophic for us, but Watford didn't make anything of them. They seemed to panic on the ball every time. Um, the much-lauded Saar wasn't particularly effect well, wasn't effective at all. I think Furpo handled, handled him really well. And uh, But, I mean, that's not to say that I don't think Leeds did some good things as well. Um, I think Leeds did well to uh, to just to keep it keep it in that sort of state where Watford were feeling a bit desperate and, and felt the need to rush some of those balls and, and make bad decisions. And I think when when Leeds are playing well, that is what they do. And I, it wasn't dissimilar, I don't think, in that we didn't create, as you say, any really great chances, but the accumulation of lots of small chances did build up, like possibly you could call it artificially inflate the XG values. But I think that we, we quite often had games like this in the championship where... Um, there weren't a great a great amount of really good chances created, but just lots and lots of shots. And I think it was a similar sort of game to one of those against a sort of mid-table opposition in the championship, which doesn't really bode very well for Watford's remaining season. Hmm. I did remark to Darren at the game that it did feel like quite like a championship game at times. Uh, what did you make of the game, uh, Joe? I do agree that Watford looked very bad. It's quite hard to judge Leeds in that sense because... When you're watching the game, obviously as a lead supporter, there's a there's a bias. Um, so I, so when I was watching the game at the time, I guess my immediate thought is that oh well, Leeds look brilliant. Um, and then when you watch it back, it's you you sort of set you think about that a bit more and think well, yeah, probably Watford's were were just were just really poor. Um, Leeds should have made it two nil. Um, throughout the game basically I mean in, in the I, I was going to say in the first half but even in the second half there were lots of little half chances and it was the kind of game where if we'd buried it and made it two or three nil um by 60 minutes then I felt like we would have just cruised to the win and my heart dropped when um Melier dropped the ball and it went in the net and it was one all because that just felt like a classic um typical Leeds thing that was going to happen to us um, unfortunately that was ruled out um, and so we sort of it felt like we sort of scraped by a bit more than we needed to it was slightly disappointed after the game actually that it wasn't 2 or 3 nil because it was really stressful to watch at the time with it only being 1 nil. When you consider the fact that Watford were so bad I, I think for me the, the big question is like what does this tell us about the rest of the season if this is you know Watford at home probably one, one of the two 
quote unquote easiest games of the season uh, and to sort of sort of scrape by in some senses as you said uh, one nil um it, it, I, I did sort of feel a little bit frustrated coming coming out of the stadium at the end of it but um let's move on to the second question then in light of the fact that you know Watford were very bad um what did we learn if anything from the game from a Leeds United perspective Joe what are the sorts of things that you you take away from that and think there's something we can build on there or maybe there's somewhere something we need to improve on there I guess in terms of improvement, my immediate thought goes to what's happening in the final third um, with us creating lots of chances. And this is this is to do with my, my bringer topic thing later on, so we don't have to go into it too deep right now, but just creating lots of chances and not capitalising on them. Um, I think what we learnt was not very much, but just little bits about Shackleton at right back, for example. I thought he was pretty good. Um, you know, going forward, that looks like a stronger option um, to me anyway. Um, I thought Urente coming back into the team was pretty pretty good, um, particularly in the first 15, 20 minutes. I thought um, he hit some nice passes and controlled the game a bit, even if there were a few mistakes in him later on in the game. So I think it's the what I learned in particular was just about those individuals that haven't had much game time um, that are just looking like they're growing into the team and, and Shackleton in particular um, and Dan James I suppose is another one that you could add to that list who's uh, who probably had his best game in a lead shirt. I think the thing that I felt I mainly learned was we've talked a lot um, I mean I think all Leeds fans have sort of said things like oh no matter how bad we are there'll still be three teams worse than us this season and this was the first time we've had kind of empirical evidence that Yes, there are clearly teams that are definitely uh, just just really obviously worse than us. Like, um, and that was quite comforting, I think, because until you've actually played these teams, you don't know how it's going to shake out on the pitch. So it, it was just nice to to play a game where you know whatever negatives you might come into with about the performance, could we have created more chances, score more goals, etc. I think there's absolutely no argument about whether we deserve to win or not, um, and and that's quite satisfying. Yeah, for sure. Question three, I mentioned the cavernous gulf between our XG and our post-shot XG in the game summary. I think we're going to talk about this quite a bit. Obviously, Joe, you're you're going to touch on this in your uh, bring a topic section. And we'll talk a little bit as well about distances in the in the um, Statric Bamford section as well. But I'm just interested to hear from you guys what you think the, the cause of this is. I mean, we generated, according to StatsBomb, two XG, um, which I think feels a little bit generous. Um Especially, I think, and I think a big cause of this maybe is because when you look through the, the those chances on as they as they're delineated in FB Ref, a huge amount of them, I think about fifty percent of them, are blocked. Um, so obviously, you're not actually seeing those chances generated into you know you know more dangerous chances by actually having to call the keeper into saving them. Um, but I do think that that there's an interesting thing here, just the the, the fact that we're reducing our XG by. 75% um, is, is pretty noticeable uh, and, and notable. So yeah, I'm interested to hear what you think the cause of this was. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, Tom. I do have a question. Uh, for post-site XG, if you miss like, and it goes wide, is that just zero? Yeah, it's basically what's the likelihood of the shot going in after it's been kicked and you know the trajectory of it and where it's headed, yeah. My immediate thought is, is the is this possibly something a little bit off to do with the initial XG model if, that, if all those block shots reducing it so much uh, in terms of how much it's taking into account where the players are stood when the shot is taken to start with. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's worth saying at this point that there are a number of models out there. Um, so essentially, there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of um, models which take the op- Opta XG um, data. So the XG data is simply like the location of the of the shot on on the pitch where it's taken, and they feed that XG data into the into their models. And there, there may be a few other parameters in there, and and they will build their own models with with the available data that they have, uh, and that will spit out a figure at the end. And a lot of those models that use the Opta numbers came out with much lower XGs. So I, I saw things from like one point five to about one point one. Um, Statsbomb does take into account more variables and is the 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 uh, industry leader in in that regard. Um, but I did I do feel as though the it, it feels as though this is slightly inflated insofar as like I couldn't off the top of my head and even watching the game a couple of times back now um, I can't think of any like really big chances that we created. I mean you can argue about how big a chance the Urente chance was. It was a good finish, um, but it was in the in the six yard box. But other than that. There's not really any chances that we took where any player was one-on-one with the keeper and directly in front of goal. Um, there's a lot of chances where we had players in front of them. And, and I, I guess a perennial problem we seem to be having this season is, I don't know if you can have a perennial problem in the course of a season, but here we are. Um, the, one of the problems we're facing this season is that we seem to be finding chances on the edge of the D. And when you do that and you cut the ball back across there, you're just going to have a lot of bodies in the way. So you're going to increase the likelihood of, of blocking. So I think this all comes into it. But yeah, I, I, I think you can argue that that, that 1.9 that Statsbomb had is maybe maybe slightly inflated or, or at least is is maybe some, some sort of issue in the model that isn't taking into account certain things. But my reading of it, on both a live watch and a sort of partial rewatch this morning was that it's not like Watford were making any of these kind of last ditch heroic blocks or anything. It was just, you know, there were blocks that you would sort of expect to be made given when the shot was taken and where it was taken from, I guess. Like it was just kind of hitting it into a crowd of bodies a lot of the time, which as you say, that kind of, that's redolent of a team that is making a lot of chances on the edge of the D and just outside the box. And yeah, for sure, it you know, it's a potential problem. Yeah, I think the only last ditch sort of tackly things that I can think of are when we actually did get the ball to the byline and we're playing the ball across the box and then there was a few times where um the 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 center back would slide in and block the ball going to Rodrigo. One thing that we've noticed noticed in uh, as a group is is that Rodrigo is a, is definitely someone who attacks the back post rather than the front post, which is quite different to what Pat Bamford does and so um I think maybe Bamford in this game potentially could have caused a few more problems in those scenarios uh, but I, I guess that's another question but I'll, I'll move it over to the, this question over to you Joe do you have anything you wanted to add on the on this sort of big gulf between the XG and the post shot XG I think it's partly to do with composure in front of goal as well um, for me anyway just thinking back to when we had Hernandez um, it feels like he would be really composed in front of goal and quite often he'd look for a placement type finish rather than um, exclusively power um, there are loads of examples of that um, where he just places it nicely into the bottom corner and the keeper can't get across in time and uh, that was that was what how Rafinha scored against West Ham it was it was quite a hard shot but it was low and in, in the bottom corner and I don't think yesterday or on Saturday we really saw many sort of composed finishes like that. I think particularly from that area on the edge of the D, like you mentioned, John, it seemed like we were just snatching at our shots and quite often they were going way over the bar. Whereas I I like to think that if Hernandez was in the same position that he'd just go for a nice placement in the corner and if the keeper gets across, then it's a a good save. But um, 
yeah, I think that that was what was lacking for me on Saturday. What about decision making? Do you think that comes into it at all? Uh, I think there's been quite a few people sort of talking about the, the decision making side of things in those scenarios. Obviously, we've got the ball to the D, and and it feels as though we're just sort of taking snapshots. Would you like to have seen maybe a little bit more guile on the ball and and just sort of trying to find the more dangerous shooting areas than than we were finding? Yeah, absolutely. I think quite often there's a if you're taking a shot on the edge of the D and you have two or three defenders rushing out to you, um, just before you take the shot, there'll actually be a spare man to your left or to your right because they've left that man to come and rush out and block the shot and. Um, there was a example of Dallas doing it just after half time that Josh flagged up on his Twitter yesterday, um, where actually if he'd just passed to his left, Dan James was open and would have curled one in with his right foot, and Dallas just fires in a blocked shot um, against a defender that's standing right in front of him. So, I think it is partly decision making as well. Yeah, just in when we get into those situations and someone's lining up a shot, maybe just going for that other option, and perhaps it's only players with. Um, though that are really creatively minded, such as Hernandez and Rafinha, that um, can have the awareness to do that. But um, certainly, players like Dallas and Click um, could could do that a bit more, and I think it would help us create some bigger chances. Yeah, this brings us on nicely to question four, which is how much of our attacking problems are down to Rafinha? This is something that I think we're starting to see a little bit more. I know that Josh has written a piece on Rafinha, arguing that maybe he goes a little bit too direct at times. Um, Darren was getting quite frustrated during the game that Rafinha was giving the ball away a lot. So, yeah, Tom, any thoughts on how Rafinha sort of is adding to our attacking woes to a certain extent? I mean, it does feel a little bit like blaming Michelangelo for crumbling paintwork on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. This, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that um, Rafinha's past uh, performances have created a little bit of a situation where he's bearing a sort of undue creative burden for the team and also trying to force that burden on himself when he doesn't necessarily always need to do it. Um, that raking crossfield ball from sort of the halfway line to to the you know to the other side of the pitch, uh, I was getting really pissed off like at, at certain points in the game yesterday that he just kept doing it and kept doing it. And to be fair, I think about two times in the match he did find his man with it and it is really it can be really powerful when it comes off. But I think he just needs to cool his jets a little bit sometimes and and just calm down uh I, I think he I think he he thrives on 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 being the you know the sort of the creative hub of the team and the player that we look to but I don't think that means you necessarily need to Steven Gerrard at every time you know yeah I, I think that it's interesting what you're saying there that his role has sort of changed in this team uh, it felt as though last season we were creating and then he was sort of like the cherry on the top of our creation um, was able to sort of do stuff that that sort of really made it stand out and it feels as though this season we're not doing that base level creation stuff. And so we're relying on him a lot to just be the creator. And um, it, it feels as though it's it's not quite working out in, in quite the same way. Joe, what's your take on Rafinha? I find this topic quite difficult because part of me, I sort of said this on the last podcast as well, but part of me thinks that you almost don't want to limit um, what, what Rafinha can do. You don't want to tell him not to be creative and be Im- improvisational and you know I think he when he when he is in that mood like like you say it can be really dangerous when it comes off and it's just that really fine line between you, d- you telling him not to do that and then perhaps he isn't creative at all and then our attack just suddenly isn't there um and him doing it too much um which 
might lead to us conceding or you know getting caught out in transition so I think it's a really difficult topic for me I think I I personally don't mind him giving the ball away um, because I like him trying those new unusual things and those balls that no one else can see in the stadium apart from him I sort of enjoy even if that's only two or three out of ten times I enjoy those so much that it almost blinds me for the other seven um, that don't come off so I, I personally think that we should just let him do his thing and just accept that that's going to lead to some defensive problems um, because when it, when it does come off it can be it can be really great um, going forward. I do agree with that Joe but um, I think when he keeps trying to do the same move over and over again it ceases to feel improvisational and it ceases to have that element of surprise like I don't mind him sort of uh, being direct and, and trying to do what you know trying new things all the time but as I, yeah as I say when it loses that element of surprise, then uh, it just feels like it feels redundant. It feels, um, it, it, yeah, as I say, it ceases to be, uh, it ceases to have any of the elements that made it good to start with to an extent. And I'm, I feel like I'm being overly critical here. Rafinha is obviously a great player and will continue to be a great player for Leeds. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure him doing seven or eight balls uh, across the field every single game is necessarily the best use of his talents. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed actually in the last few games is, particularly when we're playing Rafinha and Dan James, is that it definitely we're definitely not hitting bylines as much anymore and creating what I think are the more dangerous chances that we usually create. Um, I, th- I think we've I, I mentioned last week that that a lot of what positional player is about is about getting getting lines of of players in in the gaps between the opposition back line and then just playing a low cross or a cutback from um from from the byline just so that you can play the ball right across the the 6 yard box and you got two or three chances of maybe getting a foot on it and creating a, a pretty dangerous chance and because both Rafinha and Dan James are are playing inverted at the moment uh, we're seeing them having a tendency to try and come inside a little bit more so um with with Rafinha we're seeing him I think when he hits that sort of halfway opposition half sort of zone and in the wide area, he he is wanting to come inside, cut onto his onto his left, and we are seeing him generate chances that way. And he scored a few goals that way this season, quite importantly. But it does feel as though creatively that what we do then is we take that that those historic those horizontal um, balls that I've been talking about, and we make them into more vertical balls towards the goalkeeper. And I think one that reduces the amount of chances you have of getting on a chance and, and, and generating a dangerous chance. Two, I think it's just much harder to to control those balls when they're coming in in the air um, across you. And and three, that if you'd miss them, it's just going straight to the keeper. And we're seeing the keepers just pick the ball up in those scenarios quite a bit as well. So again, I, I echo, the, echo the sentiment that Rafinha is clearly our most important player from a creative sense I think um, with the exception of probably Rodrigo but um, at the moment it's it's feeling as though he's not adding I, I, I don't know I, I always feel as though he always looks more dangerous when he's sort of able to do background things that that then add to something that we're already doing and at the moment we're not really doing anything other than the stuff that he's doing um, again with the exception of what what Rodrigo's doing so it's, some, it's starting to feel a little bit frustrating because um, yeah it, it feels as though we are trying to force our, our hand too much and we're not doing the dangerous stuff that were, was so dangerous last season I guess I felt that that narrowness uh, might be partially a way to accommodate Rodrigo as a striker because Rodrigo is dropping deep a lot and dropping into midfield and then we've got kind of no focal point up front. So I sort of read Rafinha, he was taking up sort of strikery 
positions just outside the box. So I half wonder it's if it's a deliberate thing where Rodrigo drops deep, Rafinha comes narrower and sort of becomes an Ertzat striker. Um, uh, and I can see the merits of that, but it doesn't look as slick as it could do at the moment, maybe. Yeah, in practice, it certainly doesn't look as dangerous. And I do think we are missing Patrick Bamford. And um, I was just looking through some of the stats from this season on the analyst um, the Opta website because they've got quite a lot of individual data on there and just looking through the attacking metrics it's, it's basically Rafinha and Bamford who show up on everything they're the they're the sort of dangerous in terms of XG at least they're the dangerous two players that we have uh, and so I do think that we are missing missing Bamford um, although not to, to downplay Rodrigo at all um, let's move on to talk about Dan James we've mentioned him a little bit um, you said before, Joe, actually, that Dan James had his best performance in the Leeds shirt so far. So, yeah, interested to hear what you made of it, Joe. I think the thing that stood out to me the most was his fitness levels seemed like they were finally getting up to what Bielsa demands. Um, his pressing was fantastic. Um, there was at least two or three occasions, if not plenty more, where he pressed um, Ekong, the, the centre-back, um, which isn't technically his man because the two centre-backs are both Rodrigo's men in terms of the the pressing man-to-man marking system. Um, But actually, I think because Dan James is so pacey um, that he can go from marking um, the the right-back into pressing the centre-back incredibly quickly and um, Ekong was really struggling with it and um, just flustered and played the ball out uh, for a throw in a couple of times and I think if Dan James was a bit luckier um, some of those would have just resulted in a 1v1 um, because he would have just put in a tackle and you know it's anyone's guess where the ball's going when the defender's just um, you know panicking at that, at that stage um, we also saw him getting on the ball a bit more um, he looked good in in 1v1 situations he didn't necessarily um, get round the defender much but um, certainly his decision making in that situation seemed uh, a bit better to me that he was holding the ball up and then he was releasing um, a player who was making a good run or he would just play it back to Furpo, for example. And it always seemed like he made the right decision on Saturday. So I was really impressed with his performance and yeah, um, hopefully he can keep it up going forward. I was quite surprised he played actually. I thought Harrison would come back in um, just for, familiar- for familiarity's sake. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it got me thinking a little bit that I hadn't really... When we signed Dan James, I wasn't really thinking about him as a defensive player very much. And I sort of shared some of the bafflement around the size of the transfer fee, partly for that reason. And obviously, it still it still feels very expensive. Um, and Dan James is always going to be a player with certain faults on the ball and technically and in terms of decision making and stuff, I think. But what I hadn't really considered is that in theory, I think if you can coach him properly, Dan James could be in a defensive sense, one of the perfect players for our system, um, just because he's so fast. And if you can get him making the right, right decisions in the press, it's almost like you have a, at certain times, it feels like you have an extra player in the press. Um, so I'm sort of interested to see like how far we can push that and how um, and whether he can uh, get very, very good at it, basically. Like, uh, you know, become a sort of pressing monster. Like, cause if he can, if he can become as sort of technically and mentally good at pressing as Harrison is. And I think we all agree that Harrison's very good at it. I think the extra physical attributes on top of that would just, it it, it could create a lot of chances for us, I think. Um, and people will start having to go over the top, I think, uh, if, if, if we can, 
coordinate that well enough. So I, I guess that that was my main takeaway from James's performance. Yeah, I also noted the the off the ball stuff mainly. Um, I'm still not really that thrilled with him on the ball, but you know he is what he is in that regard. But yeah, interesting stuff from the press because I looked through the data yesterday because my again my take in the first half was same as yours, Tom. That I think we looked dangerous from well we looked dangerous when Watford had possession in their own half Um, on the rewatch part of that is because Watford are just so bad on the ball Um, I mean there's about four or five times when Watford simply just passed the ball straight to one of our players and okay sometimes that was because they were under pressure but most of the time it was because they're just not very good in possession Um, but Dan James did look look really really slick I thought just in terms of as, as Joe's mentioned that that sort of hanging between the the centre back and the full back, so you're ready for if the the dinked pass goes in, that little wedge chip from the keeper goes into the full back, and if not, you can just push really quickly onto the centre back if it goes to him. Um, but weirdly, like I, weirdly, I felt Dan James's like off ball stuff was good, but the overall press wasn't particularly impressive. It was uh, again and again looking through the data that was sort of that was sort of reflected. So we, we, we had a very, very low uh, number of pressures in the opposition half. So we weren't, we weren't doing a huge amount of pressuring. Um, and most of our pressures were coming in the defensive, defensive half. I think it was um, Cooper and Urente with the, the, the joint um, most number of, of pressures in that game. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I'm interested to see, see how Dan James shapes up, shapes up on, in the off ball stuff. Uh, I'm also interested to see how he shapes up against a team who are going to be slightly better in, in possession, obviously, um, which I think is probably a caveat that we're going to say about anything that we say about any of the players today. Um, but one thing that I found really interesting is that uh, according to the, according to FB ref, Daniel James engaged in nine pressures in, in the game and was unsuccessful in all, all nine of them. So he had a, um, pressure success percentage of zero now that means that when he engaged in a pressure Leeds didn't win possession of the ball back within the next five seconds interestingly Rodrigo who I thought pressed fairly badly in the game um, had a pressure success percentage of 64% which is um, much higher than his his usual um, rate but um, still seems still seems a little bit of an anomaly to me so just just by way of a caveat if you're looking at if you're looking at pressing pressing stats do take it with a pinch of salt because um, I, I do think that the correlation between turning the ball over within the next f- five seconds or not is not necessarily reflective of how good the, the pressing actions are but here endeth that lesson Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST.
let's move on to the bring a topic section. So enough of me talking about uh, the questions that I find interesting. It's time for you two to bring questions that you find interesting. So we'll start with you, Tom Woodhead. What topic do you want to bring to the discussion? So Dallas took a knock towards the end of the game and had to come off. Um, and given that we've been quite critical of his performances this season, um, uh, and we've, I think we've all uh, been secretly sort of hoping that for some reason he's out of the team at some point. Um, and <laughs> obviously nothing serious, but um, but if if he is uh, still injured for the next game, uh, which you know I, I could I could well see him being fit by because we've got the international break and stuff. But if he is, uh, and everyone else remains injured, so no Ailing back, no Bamford back, um, who do we think should uh, take his place in the team? It's pretty tough because I feel like the squad's quite thin at the moment, <laughs> and we're talking about a situation where you know the hypothetical question so no one else is coming back from injury so I just thought that would make it easier yeah I mean the only the only one I can really think is is that it has to be Roberts or maybe Roberts is playing as a nine and Rodrigo drops back but um yeah it's it's really tough and I don't want to think about um what what might happen if Dallas is injured because the squad's the squad is looking really thin I mean the another option which um, I'm sure won't be popular with uh, many people, um, is the old Rafinha as a 10 um, conundrum. You know, we could do a double pivot of Phillips and Click type thing and then have Rafinha as a 10. I just wanted to throw that out there to uh, to make it part of the discussion. But um, yeah, obviously I would, I would just put Roberts in. Yeah, I guess some people would be arguing that Shackleton should be given that opportunity, but I don't know. I just don't see Bielsa really prioritizing Shackleton at center midfield um unless he really really has to um and maybe this is a scenario where he really has to but given that Ailing's out I, I think that the the preference will be given to Shaq playing as a right back uh, and then then yeah you're in this you're in the same sort of conundrum it's either Roberts for me um or Bamford comes back and Rodrigo drops back into the midfield again um which I, I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear I don't think it's the ideal option but um yeah, Roberts I think had a had a good a fairly good outing um when he when he came in. I think Watford were definitely open to to being having the ball carried through the midfield a little bit more and I think he did well in that respect. Um but you know Roberts is Roberts and he's not he's 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 a a, a fine player when you're bringing him on 20 minutes to go. But when whether or not you're wanting to play him for the full 90 minutes, I don't know. We've been very positive about Roberts on this channel, mainly because he's a young player who who does have an upside. But it is getting to the point where we're not seeing enough in terms of creativity uh, and and just goal production that that I think would mean that many people would be happy with this sort of thing. So yeah, what's your thoughts on this, Tom? Um, I don't mind Roberts in there, but. I think one of the reasons why we've been a little bit better the last couple of games has been Click as the most advanced midfielder. And I think that's the thing that I would be wary of losing. And I actually think Roberts can do a lot of the deeper stuff um, that, that Dallas is tasked with. And I'd almost like to see Click staying as like the slightly higher of the two midfielders and Roberts playing a little bit deeper. Because I think despite the fact that he nominally considers, nominally considers himself a striker, um, I, I think, you know, most people would agree that his finishing hasn't been very good uh, recently, but what he has been good at is receiving the ball deep and um, and breaking lines and things like that. So I guess that would be what I'd like to see given a go uh, is just Roberts told, all right, we know you want to be a striker, but if you want to get in this team, you need to moderate yourself a little bit and maybe do hang back a bit more than your natural instincts would indicate. 
I feel duty bound at this point for a number of reasons to mention that if we are looking for a more deeper eight, then Lewis Bate is right there in the in the under twenty threes. I don't think anyone who's a fan would probably disagree with that, but I do think that Marcelo Bielsa would, and I guess at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Yeah, the other thing is just quickly on Shackleton. I think um, Shackleton's been getting better game by game at right back, so I would be kind of loath to disrupt. The the pro, you know he's finally managed to get a run in a team in one position for several games in a row. So I think it would feel a bit harsh to just start juggling around him around now. But to be fair, Bielsa doesn't really think like that either. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, Joe. What about you? What topic did you want to bring to the conversation? So I wanted to talk about um, chances, which is something that we've mentioned already and something that we chatted about in our DM. Um, so on the one hand, we didn't really create any huge chances yesterday. And Uente's goal was the only shot above 10% probability, which was on in, in for goal. Um, the rest were just 5, 6, 7, 8% probability. Um, whereas on, on the other hand, it seems like we're creating dangerous situations. Um, it's just that they then don't result in a big chance or even a shot. Um, sometimes they just get cleared. So balls whipped in between the defence and the goalkeeper that are cleared. Lots of blocked shots, shots from distance. Um, there are a couple where Rodrigo's touch just got away from him and it just went straight to Ben Foster. Um, so this leads people, including myself, to say, oh, well, we had plenty of chances in the game, even if that isn't then reflected in um, the XG models. So my question to you guys is looking forward to the rest of the season. Is the fact that we're creating these situations enough and we'll sort of hope that they eventually get converted into bigger chances? Um, or is the fact that they aren't resulting in shots going to hurt us in the future? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. Tom, what do you make of it? I think my instinct is to say that, yes, it, it will kind of work itself out to a certain extent. There was there were a few yesterday. Um, I think uh, Dan James put in some decent balls that didn't quite connect. Uh, Click put in one or two. Uh, Shackleton as well. Um, and I think sometimes those kinds of balls... You know, the proper football men would say something like, oh, you're just looking for an area there. You, you just got to put it into an area. And I think we are, certainly yesterday, I think we were putting the balls into the right areas. I don't think these were like wildly bad decisions, the balls that we were putting in or, or wildly technically bad crosses either. Um, and I think those kinds of things, I think there's more chance in it than people are usually willing to admit. Um, and And a few of those connecting can turn what looks like uh, quite a sort of a dispiriting performance into something that looks quite good. So, uh, yeah, I guess my, my hope, I don't, it's probably about 50 50 hope and expectation that would be that, yes, we will convert more of those into shots as the season goes on. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the time on this channel, we talk about finishing as being something which is it's more important to create chances than it is to worry too much about your finishing because the the reason we talk about xg models is because they are they 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 do sort of break down over a long period of time and and if you are creating good chances then eventually you'll start finishing in a reflection of of those chances but this one's slightly different insofar as like it's not just the case that we're talking about finishing here this isn't a finishing issue this is a making decisions in dangerous areas to mean that we move the ball into perhaps situations where we do create big chances um, so there's a slight gap between okay we're creating these big chances all we need to do is rely on the fact that they eventually will start turning into goals to well okay we're getting into 
dangerous situations. Um, we just need to wait for them to to then result in big chances. Um, I'm not sure what I think about this, but I do think that there comes a point at which we're going to have to say we are doing this regularly enough that it seems to be indicative of a, pro- of a problem that we have. And I don't know what that problem would be, largely because I think that we've not had this problem before under Bielsa. Um, and I think this is one of the things that has really struck me in the in this season, that we've gone from being a team that seems to play really sensible football and really smart football and football that is all about it's not necessarily cerebral because it's not about thinking about what you're doing it's, it's about being having drilled into you the fact that you do these actions and eventually you will result in dangerous chances suddenly it just looks as though we're no longer doing that we, it looks as though we're getting we're getting sort of two-thirds of the way through the Bielsa football handbook and then the the last chapter's missing or something and I'm not entirely sure how you go from from one to the other how does how do you go from having players who just seem to constantly find the right ball in the final third to players who just are shooting from the the edge of the d and looking very much like a, a lower table side um so yeah I, I'm interested to hear if you if you two have any thoughts on that but at the moment the precise issue with Leeds seems to be that we've gone from a team that is creating dangerous chances to a team that now gets to situations where they usually would and aren't doing that so Joe what do you you think about that? I think that given it's still a relatively small sample size in that we've only played seven games my gut instinct is just to say well oh that's just unlucky Um, like the couple of balls that went over the top to Rodrigo and he I think if he touches them down then he's he's taking a shot on goal um, and it's probably quite a, a big chance. It might be 0.2 XG or something. But his first touch just lets him down. And in the moment, I'm thinking, oh, well, if his touch was just that little bit better, then that could have been a big chance. Or if that was Bamford even, um, then that would have been a big chance. Um, and the same with the Dallas one I mentioned earlier, where he could have fed in Dan James to his left uh, in the second half. Um so at the moment, my instinct is to think, oh, this is just unlucky and it will work itself out. But I do agree with you, John, in that the longer it goes on, the more you do think, oh, OK, is is this a problem that's going to last all season? Once we get into 10, 15 games maybe and we're having the same issues, then um, we re- we need to assess what's going wrong. I mean, I'm sure Bielsa is already assessing what's going wrong. But um, yeah, I think for me, it's still a little bit early, but... Um, it's still a question that's worth thinking about because it's it's quite an interesting discussion. I sort of see it as two categories of the like within this. So you've got you've got the situations like Joe's talking about where Dallas should have passed it to Dan James, um, or where someone takes a shot when there might be something better on. And those ones do worry me. Um, I think they're more indicative of a wider problem than, for example. Um, balls that are flashed across the box and no one quite gets on the end of it or I think those are mostly sensible decisions and you're relying on the look of the draw to an extent um, to, and, and that those ones to me are almost um, uh, John you were comparing finishing to the creation of chances that's just to me moving that finishing problem one step back uh, there's a level of randomness and and when you're putting that cross or, or that pass in um, you know sometimes it'll go right sometimes it won't the same with finishing so those ones don't worry me so much because it's just adding an extra variable that you may or may not get right but I think it's those bad decisions where people are shooting when they should pass or you know or or similar kinds of things like that I think they're more indicative of a, of a possible problem 
Well, let's move on to talk about listener questions. Uh, enough of, of our ramblings, and let's hear what some of the, the fans have to say about the, the way Leeds performed at the weekend. Um, so first question from CK, sort of a continuation of our, our previous discussion that we've just had. Um, he says, why are our players such poor decision makers in the final third? Inferior players in worse teams seem to make better decisions and are more clinical. I don't understand it. So Tom, any thoughts on the decision making in particular? People aren't going to like it, but I think it's partly is that we're playing a player who isn't a very good maker of decisions in central midfield. Um, and he's one of the players who typically tends to be on the ends of these situations where you're making a decision whether to shoot or pass. Um, I I also think that the extreme speed that we try and do everything at um, gives players less time to make decisions. And I think, you know, you look, you look at, I mean, I'm not sure exactly which uh, which inferior players in worse teams he's referring to? So, um, I, I, so so it's hard to say whether you know whether I agree with the premise or not. But um, I think a lot of it just comes down to the speed that we're trying to do everything, at. And, and the players are trying to hold a lot of stuff in their heads as well, uh, which must make every decision that you make, you know, by a certain degree more difficult. The other thing I wanted to add with this is that just in relation to Saturday's game. Leeds were really dominant in possession. We had 65-plus, I think, um, possession, somewhere between 65 and 70. Um, so I think a lot of the time when the ball is in the final third and Leeds are retaining possession, um, it can be much harder to make a, a wise decision than um, if a team's counter-attacking, for example. So this might be what the the question is referencing. Say, Worst teams and inferior players seem to make better decisions. And I just wanted to add that I guess if it is a worse team then perhaps they're playing more on the counter-attack and then there's more space for them to attack into which might be why it seems like they make better decisions um, when in reality if they if that same team was to retain possession in the final third and you know dominate um, possession then maybe they would have the same issues where they just struggle to break a team down I think we need to talk about the system as well because I think the only reason that you think that some players would be inferior to some of the Leeds players is because the system that they're playing in elevates them to a certain extent and I think when you're talking about players at, at worst teams usually you'll get players sort of just um, having to solely operate with like decision making so deciding when it, what if there is no sort of overarching tactical system where there there's very rigid rules then the only thing that you need to think about is like well what do I do here you probably think two or three options and and you operate based on that and professional footballers in the premier league despite being inferior to other players in the premier league are still playing in the premier league for the very good reason that they are able to operate in that way and I think the part of the issue that we're seeing with Leeds is that because there are so many rigid rules that that, that these players have to operate by that that you know that to a to a certain extent there isn't a huge amount of space for for those decision making actions and I think when when we're not hitting those sorts of patterns of play that we've been seeing in the last three seasons under Bielsa then I just think our players probably aren't quite so ready for making those those split second decisions and also like a player like Stuart Dallas, for example, I just don't think he's going to necessarily be the, the sort of player who is going to have those three options in front of him and, and pick the, the best one every time. Um, and I think that part of the issue here is that, that it's the system that's breaking down rather than the players that are breaking down, if that makes any sense. Um, but it's certainly, again, something that we'll need to think about a little bit more as the, as the season runs on. Um, question two from Daniel Moroni, who, um, yeah, seems 
desperate to meme me in this one because he says, did Shaq take his opportunity by the horns? Could there be a stampede of opportunities for him on the horizon, even when Ailing's back to assume his role as head rancher? Open brackets, first choice, right back, close brackets. So yeah, just a question about Shaq. I know we've talked about we've we've talked about Dallas and who's going to replace him, and obviously that sort of touches on on Shackleton. But Joe, what do you make of of Shackleton at right back? Would you prefer him to stay there rather than Ailing, given that Ailing had a a bit of a shaky start to the season? I think when Ailing is back fit, I would rather see Ailing there. As much as I like Shackleton, I don't think he's quite ready to take over his first choice. I think it's one of these things that maybe over the next couple seasons, if that looks like where Shackleton is going to be playing, then I can see it it happening. But um, I don't think it's quite there. I don't think it's quite there yet. Um, But Shackleton has been playing fantastically and uh, it's great to see him having a run in the team. And um, I feel quite comfortable knowing, okay, if Ailing isn't back for three, four more games, then we have got a good second choice at right back. It doesn't feel like, um, to me anyway, that I'm desperate for Ailing to come back because we we need him in that area. It's more just that I think Ailing would be preferable, but um, the second choice in Shackleton um, is doing well so far. Tom, you are the Ailing defender. So what do you make of this? This must be a hard decision for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Shaq's been getting better with every game. Um, where I think... Ailing has the upper hand is that I don't think Shaq has that kind of variety to get to his game that Ailing has. He, he's got he's got a very good short pass and he can play the obvious balls well and he can do the you know the give and goes uh, and the one twos and stuff. But I don't think uh, certainly on the ball I don't think he quite has um, he doesn't quite have the vision that Ailing has to see um, slightly trickier passes or longer passes um, and. I think defensively as well, he's obviously just not as used to defending one-on-one and things like that. So I think Ailing would still be my clear first choice. But having said that, Ailing did not start the season very well. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I think it was, if there ever can be a good time to get injured, uh, maybe that was quite a good time for Ailing to get injured and just step out of the firing line for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure he'll be back in the team soon enough because he's one of Bielsa's favourites and I think rightly so. Yeah, I wonder how much the poor performances at the beginning of the season related to the injury that he's then picked up and has needed a minor op to to sort out. I think that certainly has to be taken into account. But definitely agree with you that Ailing Ailing's just his decision making at right back is just usually absolutely perfect. He just seems to he seems to know when to go forward. He seems to know when to carry the ball. He seems to know when to pass the ball. It works so well. Um, and I don't think we see quite that sort of variety as you said from from Shackleton. But I guess we will watch this space. Question three from Johnny Bradbourne. I'm loath to talk about Llorente, but you two will be will give a good account of him. So um, he says, is Llorente our best centre-back? Comes back from injury and plays so well. His passing forward is so good. Do the stats back this up? Um, in terms of the stats side of things, I have looked looked it up. And just just a few things to say. Firstly, when you're talking about centre-backs and stats, it's, it's hard to um, come to any sort of conclusions on things, um, mainly because... I think that the sorts of metrics that we have developed for centre-backs are all on-the-ball stuff, and a lot of what centre-backs need to do is off the ball. Um, The other thing is that we get asked this question a lot, and the answer is always... Liam Cooper always outperforms pretty much anyone else who's playing as 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 a centre back. So, what are the things that you want to someone like? Wait, what do you, what are the things you want a, a good, good uh, centre back in a Bielsa system to do? It's going to be carrying the ball. It's going to be progressing the ball through passing, and it's going to be you know 
pressures and, 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 and tackles. And Liam Cooper just stands out in, in all three of those in most games. That's not to say that in all games he's going to be the best centre-back, but over the course of the season, he, he will put up the most passing uh, progressive yardage. He will get a decent amount of carries um, and he will do pretty good on the on the tackling side of things too. So yeah, yeah, I just looked through the, the, the data from the game and he did, he did outperform Urenti on those metrics, but I, I don't think that really means a huge amount um to be honest i mean i think the thing with urente is that everyone will wax lyrical about his disguised passes um but the the point is that liam cooper puts in such a high volume of those progressive passes that he will just end up moving the ball forward more often than urente and so the big question has to be well what is the value of, of those disguised passes urente made one of those disguised passes at the weekend and the ball went to um Rodrigo who passed it to Dallas or Dallas who passed it to Rafinha I can't remember which and you sort of end up in the same scenario as you do if you just build up down the wide area as well so um, that's just my two cents on on this Um, what did you guys make of of Llorente Tom? I I thought he was fine I don't think it was one of his better games to be fair I think there was a couple of there was one moment in our sort of left back area where he got himself into a bit of a tizzy and, and, and you know, passed it straight to a Watford player. In general, I like Llorente, but I think it does kind of, a lot of it comes down to whether you're happy to have a player who sort of looks like he's trying to buy crystal meth. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> like and I like that. I like that kind of jitteriness and that kind of, the, the idea that he always looks like he's on the move and he's always thinking about, you know, what to do next. Um, but I get, I, I, I do get that if you know he doesn't appear particularly calm a lot of the time uh but i think a lot of it is kind of an aesthetics thing and i don't think as you say i don't think the outcome is all that similar i think i think in the limited um time that i've seen him i think i do prefer him to cock by by a fairly decent by a, a fairly confident margin um and i think if you know we accept that bielsa is going to ideally play a right footer a right center back and a left footer at left center back i think he would definitely be my first choice in that position yeah, and I wouldn't disagree with that. I do think he is he's better than Cock, and at the moment he's more available than Cock, which is, I suppose, the more important um, factor in this one. Joe, how about you? I thought um, in the first 15, 20 minutes, Uente was really, really good. Um, even on the rewatch, I was sort of looking out for it, and I, actually I thought he was great. Um, there was that one disguised pass, but there was also two um, non-disguised passes, I guess, um, over to Rafinha, um, that both were brilliantly weighted. And then there was a moment where he was tracking his man over to the left back position and put in a really nice tackle. Um, and then he, he made a couple of mistakes, like Tom mentioned. Um, and he, he tried to do more disguised passes and more balls over the top and they didn't quite seem to work as well. Um, so it was kind of hit and miss for me. Um, I thought there were times when he was really good and times when he was just not very good at all. Um, so by the end of the game, I, I felt the same as you, John, in that um, Cooper was better for me um, in the game on Saturday. Um, and yeah, I think Urente was was very much hit and miss. But what I, what I will say is that I think the goal will have given him some confidence. I think confidence... Um, affects Uente quite a lot. I think we saw that in the game against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge um, last December where the the Chelsea fans really got on top of him and he looked lost. I think that was his... Was that his debut or um, that was sort of one of his first games and he just really didn't settle in. So I, I do think the goal yes, uh, Saturday would have given him confidence and um, yeah, in terms of right-footed centre-backs, I think he's probably our best option at the moment. 
I think the other thing I'd add, I think this was a game that was harder um, in terms of possession, harder for the centre-backs than it was for the full-backs. Um, a lot of the time we see teams sort of pressing as fairly wide when we've got the ball at the back, but Watford were just having their sort of three forwards really narrow um, and only really engaging the full-backs when they actually receive the ball. So there was it was it was a much harder job for the centre backs than it sometimes is when people are really trying to look after our full backs. Um, so so I think that made it quite easy for Shackleton and Furpo to look very comfortable. Whereas for both Cooper and Urente, I think it was a slightly more complicated job. Yeah, and so much of the the centre back arguments that rumble on are to do with aesthetics as well. It's important for you to to mention that, um, Tom. The the fact of the matter is we have four centre backs now who I think. I'm happy for us to play any any one of them really uh, and I think that's a nice situation to be in given that in basically any other position we just don't have that kind of depth so um, it's it's a nice problem to have um, so that's that's sort of my general takeaway from this one Right let's go to the Statric Bamford section which is the section where we just try and dig up some of the statistical elements of the game to, to have a discussion about and unfortunately I've ended up back at sh- shooting um, and chances but I found this kind of interesting because I hadn't really looked into it but it felt as though we were ch- taking a lot of shots from distance in, in the Watford game it's felt like we've taken a lot of shots from distance this season so far so I thought I'd just have a little bit of a dig around and see see what was happening and um, interestingly the Watford game was the was the fifth furthest distance from goal that our shots were taken from. So um, the average distance of, of our shots was 18 yards from goal, which feels quite high to me. Um, but I, I, I would add to that, I have no idea how long a yard is. So um, <laughs> it may simply just be that I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. It's six hands, John. Uh, okay, yeah, cool. Three furlongs or something. <laughs> right. Just for context, so the worst performance in terms of shooting distance this season was the Manchester United game where we had 10 shots from an average distance of 20.7 yards, which feels pretty humongous. Watford, yeah, is the third best, weirdly. Liverpool was 15 yards average and Burnley was 15.6 yard average. Um, by way of um, by way of context in, in the broader side of things, the, the average... Um, distance so far from goal for our shot, shots has been 18.3 yards um, and yeah compared to last season the average was 16.2 so we're talking like a full two yards on average um, closer to the goal last season than we were this season in terms of our shooting and if anyone wants to hear the the average distance against um, this season it's been 16.9 yards and last season um, was uh, was 17.2 yards. So what we've seen is a very, very slight change in that regard. So it seems as though we're defending roughly the same as we were, um, but we are generating chances on average two yards further away than than usual. So um, that's the data. What do you guys make of that, Tom? I did see one of those sort of um, clickbait football Twitter accounts posting something about how Leeds have scored more um, from long range shots than any other team like over the past season or whatever it was. Uh, and I, I, I guess I half wonder if this is just the players um, realising that they, they've scored a lot from long range and therefore shooting more from long range. Um, uh, obviously, I think if you look at a stat like this, you always want it to be lower because it stands to reason that um, the closer you shoot from, the um, the more likely you are to score a goal. So I, I guess you want the direction of travel to reverse. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to flag up another metric that's that's on this graph that we have in front of us, which is shots on target percentage. So how many 
um, how many of our shots actually resulted in a shot on target. And I noticed that the Watford game on Saturday is is the lowest. So 15% of our shots were actually on target. We had 20 shots and three of them were on target, which seems very poor to me. Um, and the the one above that, the Newcastle game, is actually our, our second highest of the season. 21 shots, nine of those on target, which is 42%. So I think that tells us everything we need to know about Saturday, really, which is that we were we were shooting from roughly the edge of the box on, on average, 18.3 yards. But... Um, you know the percentage of those that were on target is is really really poor and that tells me that something has to change um from yesterday whether that's just our shooting improving um or what we've mentioned quite a few times now which is just the decision making in the final third and just actually not taking those shots um there are a couple of just really silly ones that I noticed on the rewatch like Shackleton had one that was probably from 25 yards and Dallas had a couple that were just from way too far out that were just never going to be a goal and you just think oh come on just you know make a different decision and then maybe get the ball a bit closer to the goal and we'll have a better chance so I think it was a frustrating day in that regard on Saturday. The thing that's most frustrating about that is that it wasn't as though we were struggling to control the ball and so I don't really get what's every time we turn the ball over either they passed it back to us in 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 a deep area or they they hit it long and we we just cleaned it up so I don't understand why you wouldn't just try and generate some of those more dangerous chances in a game like that why not just say well we'll take the risk we'll 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 be a little bit more patient we'll try and get into those wide areas we'll try and cause some problems rather than sort of snatching at shots as though we were like a couple of goals down against a better team that was for me really what what sort of stood out in terms of the the shooting I think our time is very much up and fortunately we don't need to talk about a game preview because uh, we have the international break in front of us so we've saved a little bit of time there um, obviously we'll be back during the break with the Southampton preview over on our Patreon and there will be lots of other Patreon goodies going up in the next few days uh, we've just recorded a under 23s podcast uh, that's Darren Driver and Tom Wilson and I think they were joined by Josh Hobbs this week um, we'll also have a couple of videos this week I think I'm going to look at what I've talked about that distinction between vertical attacking and, and horizontal attacking and see just how, how that played out against Watford whether or not we could have developed maybe more chances into those more dangerous horizontal chances so if any of that sounds interesting head over to our Patreon which is www.patreon.com forward slash all stats aren't we but I think that that's pretty much everything for us so all that remains for me to do is to say thank you to to Tom. See ya. And thank you to Joe. Cheers. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And I hope you all have a blessed international break. <laughs>